0: I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Palawa people. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging.
1: Getting that feedback and seeing the enjoyment that people get from the wine is, is really important to me because at the end of the day, you know, people get quite deep and philosophical about wine, but really I'm just making wines for, for people to enjoy. This
0: is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Holm Oak is a labour of love for the Duffies. Winemaker Beck Duffy and viticulturist Tim Duffy are living their dream, crafting cool climate wines in the Tamar Valley of Tasmania. Hi, Beck. Thanks for joining
1: me. Thanks, Chantaine. Nice to be with you. Well,
0: it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. At the age of fourteen, you decided you wanted to be a winemaker. Is that right?
1: Ah, uh, yeah, that is right. It was a bit of a an unusual decision for a fourteen year old whose uh, parents don't drink wine and who. And I grew up on a a little island where there is no wine industry. That is bizarre.
0: I think my greatest uh, dream at that age was to go to a Red Hot Chili Peppers concert or something like that. I mean, I can't even imagine thinking about my future. So what a unique individual you are. Tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up on King Island.
1: Uh, so it was lots of fun, but it was quite isolated. Uh, there was a population of about 2,000 people there. So as you can imagine, everybody knows everybody and everybody knows what everybody else is doing as well. Uh, so um, it was, I grew up on a farm though, so it was really great to sort of have that agricultural background. Uh, as a kid, we went fishing a lot. We went to the beach uh, we played golf as well. My parents were really into golf. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a really nice um, way to grow up. But then at the age of uh, about 13, when I was in grade eight, um, I went to boarding school in Launceston, which I also really enjoyed. It was nice to, to be able to get um, off the island. And as now a parent of a 12 and a 13-year-old, um, I'm very grateful for my parents uh, for doing that um, because I can't imagine actually sending my kids off to boarding school.
0: Yeah, absolutely, So, but you grew up on a small island, then you graduated and decided to go up to a slightly bigger island, what are you like in big cities, do you enjoy them or do you just feel a bit suffocated and stifled?
1: Uh, I like uh, going for short periods of time. I certainly don't enjoy the traffic, as I'm sure most people uh, don't, but certainly um, much prefer to live uh, in open spaces uh, and where I can't see the neighbours. Um, but yeah, definitely I uh, enjoy the, the country lifestyle more than the city, but it's always nice to go to the city, go to some great restaurants and you know, do some shopping as well. Mm,
0: I tend to agree with you on that. It's nice to to be in the hustle and bustle and all the wonderful restaurants and everything, but then to kind of escape and be able to breathe again. (laughs) So you wanted to, you said you're going to be a winemaker. How did you come to that decision and then how did you go about doing that?
1: Yeah, so when I was in grade Ten, we sort of got to, you get the book of all the different occupations that you can do because you've got to go off and do work experience somewhere. And it was always in my mind that I might sort of wanted to do something in agriculture and I enjoy chemistry and biology and, and sciences. So, I thought... Uh, I would have a look through the book and the last one in the book was winemaking and I thought that might be um, a good profession uh, for me. I also, at the same time when I did my work experience, uh, the other occupation I thought I might like is um, to be a chiropractor. Uh, Which is something very different, obviously. (laughs) So, um, for work experience in grade ten, I did two days at Piper's Brook. Uh, That was back in the early nineties, and I did two days at a chiropractor as well. And when I was at the chiropractor, I almost fainted from all of the the cracking and the manipulation that they were doing. So. Um, sort of the the medical profession definitely wasn't for me, so winemaking it was. (laughs) So a hard pass on that. And then so from there, I just decided that I was going to be a winemaker. And so in grade 11 and 12, I uh, chose subjects that were geared towards that. And then when I finished grade 12, I went straight to university and studied uh, winemaking in in Adelaide.
0: Amazing. What a visionary. That's so awesome. And you did some work experience around the world. Um, What was the kind of most influential um, experience that you had in terms of you know r- cementing what you wanted to do
1: uh that's sort of uh an interesting question because I worked uh in the Napa Valley for a vintage which was a lot of fun uh but obviously much more Cabernet uh, focused over there and then I think probably I came back and worked at Winds for a vintage which I really enjoyed and I enjoyed that sort of heritage and um and such a, a great brand to work with. Unfortunately, not one of the greatest vintages that they'd had there, but um, I enjoyed that. But I ended up at Vale in Western Australia um, after a stint on King Island uh, doing cheesemaking. I thought I might want to be a cheesemaker and, and take a bit of a career change. But I, that's probably actually what cemented me into winemaking because I decided that I, I didn't like cheesemaking. It was kind of quite repetitive and the same thing every day. Uh, very early starts all year as well uh, and so I thought that's when I then got the job at Capel Vale and that really sort of cemented for me what I wanted to do uh, it was a great experience there and I got to to make wine from a lot of different regions in Western Australia which was really enjoyable for me uh, and I guess that's where I really decided that yeah this is definitely what I want to do uh, so I was over there for five years.
0: Hmm. Oh, you chose some amazing spots and all really different. I mean, that Napa's like mammoth, isn't it? And then, you know, to be to be over in WA with, and like you said, in Kunawara as well, all really iconic kind of wonderful winemaking regions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I had a great time at um, Tattachilla in uh, McLaren Vale when it was there as well. So, that was a, a really fun vintage.
0: Oh, so much great experience. You decided to come back though. And uh, how did you decide to uh, in the Tamar Valley and then up in the north?
1: Uh, So this was, I guess it was kind of uh, fortuitous. It was uh, the property came up for sale uh, because the the previous owners were getting divorced and my parents' accountants was also the accountants of this other couple. And my mum and dad had helped out my sister and her um, husband in their business. He's a crayfisherman, And so they thought that they needed to even up the ledger a little bit. And so they asked me whether um, I would like to move back to Tasmania and, and have my own sort of vineyard and, and winery. And being very naive, I said yes. Uh, this was in 2004. The previous owner was going to lease it back for a couple of years. So I still had a little bit more time to To sort of learn my craft a little bit more I suppose and get prepared but uh, so I moved back to Tasmania in 2006 so that's how it all came about it wasn't something that I was I guess thinking of it was just an opportunistic thing which um, worked out in the end thankfully.
0: And Holmoke you know the vineyards have been planted there for quite some time so it really is a bit of an institution and you've got some really gorgeous old vines.
1: Yeah, so the vineyard was planted originally in 1983. There was actually a lot of Cabernet planted on the vineyard in the early days. Uh, Cabernet was something that uh, people were drinking at the time back in the early 80s. People were drinking, you know, Cabernet from Coonawarra. Pinot probably wasn't something that was heard of so much in in Australia back then. And so I have a fair bit of old Cabernet vines. And fortunately, our location uh, right on the river means we're a slightly warmer site. So we still have uh, Cabernet planted and then there was a small planting of Pinot as part of the original planting as well so when we took over the vineyard there was six hectares of vines mostly uh, Pinot Noir and Cabernet and a little bit of Riesling so yeah some really lovely old vines there to work with which was tonight which was nice and also um, to build on we've sort of planted a fair bit more since then.
0: I'm glad that you've kept some of those great old Cabernet vines. And yes, I know that, you know, cooler climate varieties have really kind of flourished down in Tassie and, and you guys are known for your exceptional Pinot Noir and I'm a big fan of your Riesling as well. And I know you have uh, Arnais planted down there too, but it's great to see that you've kept some of that history as well. And, and you know, the Tamar is a very special place where you are able to do quite a few different varieties. Just for the listeners, can you tell me a little bit about what makes kind of Tamar Valley special?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, as the name suggests, we are in a valley. Uh, it's a, I guess it's an estuary-based valley. So, the, while it's called a river, the Tamar River is quite big. Um, it is tidal and it has um, quite a strong influence on the different um, locations in the valley. It's quite interesting because it's not a wide, flat expanse. There's lots of sort of hills and peninsulas that stick out into the river like we do. Uh, and then you've got obviously the sides of the valley where it's slightly cooler. So a really big influence from from the river. During the ripening season we get a lot of um, fog coming down the river as well which creates quite a humid environment which is great for um, aromatic development, also great for botrytis so um, disease pressure can be relatively high where we are Um, but just a really um, diverse and and beautiful valley where you can grow lots of um, different varieties as you said because it's just slightly warmer depending on where you are in the valley. Uh, as I said, we stick out on a bit of a peninsula right in the valley floor, so slightly warmer where we are. Where you go, you know, ten minutes up the road, and you're up the side of the valley a little bit more, and it's slightly cooler and different, and different soils. So great diversity, and even across our own site, um, really different um, wines from block to block on our on our own sort of um, site as well. Yeah, and
0: all, all, mostly it's kind of the orientation's north. To south is that right?
1: Yeah so all of our um, all of our vines are planted the rows are, are north facing um, so that means you get the really lovely uh, morning sun on the eastern side of the vines um, which helps with without uh, ripening and um, also just you know drying out the vines in the morning if you've had those foggy foggy mornings and then um, so yeah, you get that really lovely sunlight into the vines. Well I think
0: Tassie wine's never been at a better place than it is right now, and a lot of the conversations in restaurants tend to be kind of looking stylistically at the different um, regions and and kind of the expressions that you get. So Pinot Noir is something that kind of comes up quite a bit, and I think you're well-versed in in Pinot Noir and all your different clones that you have. How would you describe Pinot Noir um, and its kind of flavour profile and style as opposed to other regions in, in Tasmania?
1: Uh, so I guess pinot noir, it's such a interesting and tricky variety that it's it's so many different um, iterations of what you can do with it depending on how it's grown. Even from like I said, from our north facing river block to our flatter um, sort of winery block, you get really big differences in um, the texture and the structure and the and the aromatics of the wine. So. With uh, Pinot and our winery block, which is flatter, it's definitely lighter, more sort of strawberry fruit characters, beautiful and and aromatic, but doesn't have the same level of tannin structure to our slightly warmer block, which is down on a north-facing slope on the river, um, which you tend to get more density and spice and tannin structure. So that's just a really small example of vines that are maybe 100 metres apart on how different they can be. So. To then sort of, I guess, expand that beyond our own vineyard, um, the, the possibilities are endless for the different styles that you want to make and that's what's really fun and particularly for Tim and I, he being a viticulturalist and me being a winemaker, we get that really um, sort of close relationship and with Pinot, it's really important um, to get it right in the vineyard and in the winery. Some varieties, it's very much like a winemaker's wine, which I... which sort of more in the Chardonnay realm and some are very much the viticulturalist wine which is more like Riesling you need to get that perfect in the vineyard but with Pinot it's very much that working together um, which makes um, the different styles and working out what you want to make Um, you really need that close relationship as a as a viticulturalist and a winemaker to be able to to pull that off I think.
0: Well, now that you bring that up, I was going to ask you, you know, working with your husband, uh, do you tend to keep, you know, your jobs quite separate? Or like you said, at some points you do need to, but other times you really need to work together. Is that right?
1: Yeah, we do. We do keep them um, fairly separate. I guess they're very different. People kind of think that you know if you've got a vineyard, then you sort of do everything, but growing grapes is very different to making wine. Uh, so his um his passion and special speciality is in um in growing the grapes, where I much prefer to be. In the winery, um, making the wines, but they're definitely um, at vintage time. Is probably when we mo- work most closely together and ha- and have the most arguments. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's definitely. And then we'll be looking at the wines as we go through, um, you know, the the whole year, watching the wines mature and work out. You know what worked in particular. A particular block and what what might not have done. And I guess we've been there for about 17 years now, which is is quite a long time, but really we've only had 17 goes at making those wines and some even less because we've obviously been planting new blocks. So, you only get sort of one shot at it each year to try something different. So, it definitely is, you know, making small incremental changes over time, but it does take a long time um, for that to come to fruition, I guess. So, yeah, it's definitely something that we work on together, but um, it's nice not to see each other all of the time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, sometimes you do need to kind of divide and conquer and, and go to your separate ways. <laughs>
1: uh, at, at the end of the day, he gets the final say in the vineyard and I get the final say in the winery. <laughs> Perfect. Clear cut
0: definition. I love that. <laughs> yep, <that's it. laughs> now, Becky, you seem like a little bit of an ideas person. Tell me a little bit about your sensory garden.
1: Yeah, so this, I do come up with lots of ideas and some come to fruition and some don't, but I'm um, pretty happy that I got this sensory garden off the ground. Uh, a long time ago, I was reading about um, a place in the States, which is a winery called Kendall Jackson, and they had a sensory garden where the garden is planted to represent different grape varieties. And I thought that was a really um, interesting and fun way to demonstrate uh, the different aromas and textures and flavours that you get in wine using plants. Um, and because Tim really likes to to grow things and I like to make things, we thought that it might be fun to, to do that out at Home Oak. We're also looking uh, for something to attract people to our cellar door that wasn't, you know, the usual thing like a restaurant or something like that because we really didn't want to go down that path. Uh, So we decided to start planting our, our sensory garden, which was probably about eight years ago now. So it's taken a long time for all the plants to be established. But now we have a garden where each part of the garden represents a different grape variety. So for example, in the Pinot Noir garden, We have strawberries and cherries and blueberries. uh, We've got a Sauvignon Blanc garden, even though we don't make Sauvignon Blanc anymore, but it's got passion fruit and asparagus and gooseberries. Um, The Chardonnay garden has a lot of stone fruit trees. So just a really nice way to be able to talk people through uh, the different aroma compounds and how they develop in wine and why they're similar to what you find in plants and then it's been really great to actually run the tours this year. Now that the gardens are reaching sort of a mature stage, where we can take people around and you know eat a nectarine and smell the chardonnay and get to understand um, the different aromas and textures in wine as well. So we have a little texture garden where you can feel the different plants that represent the different textures that you have um, on the palate. So it's really it's been really fun. Actually, I really like it.
0: Oh, it sounds. To me, that just is makes so much sense, and to me, it just sounds like a wonderland. It's, I think, one of the most brilliant parts of being involved in wine is just how um, descriptive and and um, how alluring wine can be but it is hard sometimes for people when they're getting started to kind of look into a glass and see all those things but it does you have to start somewhere and I think that putting you know those senses in front of people and asking them to kind of be curious about the world they live in and and pick up and smell and taste things is the best way to do it so I just think it sounds like a delight and I I think you know if, if you know anyone's down that way that is something that they just have to do.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really fun. And even like just eating an apple and getting that malic acid character, which is the same sort of acidity that you find in, in Riesling and well it's in all wine, but, you know, particularly prominent in, in Riesling. And then they go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And then how you can convert that, you know, that malic acid, which is quite hard into lactic acid. That's like, you know, the, the acid that you get in milk, which is much softer. It just all sort of starts to come together for people when you can actually demonstrate it with something that they understand a little bit more.
0: Yeah. And it's all about, I suppose, having the right people to facilitate that experience too, isn't it? Because it's about somebody that can communicate to lots of different people. So, you, uh, who, who manages that part of it for you?
1: Uh, so, I do the tastings. Uh, so, I make myself available for those, which is fun. Um, I have my cellar door manager sort of does the the actual tour of the garden and then um, you can go and collect all the bits and pieces that we need to to make the tasting lots of fun. So we sort of split it between the two of us uh, and it's been really great. The people who have been coming on our – Um, tours. uh, Some are are more knowledgeable than others and it's really um, just great to to be able to give people a little bit more of an insight into the complexities involved in wine but without being you know too bamboozling I suppose because there is a lot of a lot of chemistry and stuff involved which even um, yeah I struggle to understand at times.
0: (laughs) Good gracious so not only are you making you make a, a good amount of wine with lots of different varieties you're also doing these uh sensory garden classes as well, which just blows my mind. I mean, for a lot of people coming to a cellar door, you know, even just seeing the winemaker is a total thrill, let alone if they're pouring the wine for you and chatting and doing something like that. I have no idea how you find the time, but um, I think that that's pretty amazing. And yeah, even more of a reason to get down there and do that. You have... You have a busy home. Uh, I believe you've got some gorgeous children. You've got a couple of family dogs and you have three pigs as well?
1: We do have three pigs. We have Pinot, Pinot Junior and Mayonnaise. Who called
0: a pig mayonnaise? Who came up with that? Uh,
1: my, my eldest son, Max, he always wanted a pug and wanted to call it mayonnaise, but I told him he couldn't have a pug because they have a few issues. And so we got a uh, – he decided he would call his pig mayonnaise. I don't know where it came from.
0: <laughs> I think it's very cute. The first pig that you got, uh, which his name is – what did you say? Manager Peanut-a-Pig. <laughs> um, you thought he was a miniature. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so – we, he was advertised in the paper like the local paper the examiner um as a miniature pig and so we thought um this would be fun to have a pig my husband actually had a pet pig when he was um when he was young called jackson uh, and so tim's like we need a pig and i'm like no we don't need a pig <laughs> this was like back in i don't know 2008 uh, it was a long time ago we've had pino longer than we've had kids uh and anyway so it's advertised in the paper uh so we we went out to Deloraine. We took the little cat box out with us to put him in. <laughs> and he was quite small, uh, obviously as a piglet. <laughs> uh, but then, yeah, he did grow into quite a sizable pig. Uh, he used to just roam around the vineyard and he and our, um, our chocolate lab, Bella, would um, go on adventures around the Tamar Valley and, and create all sorts of havoc. Uh, so now he just has his, they had their own sort of yard. But <laughs> yeah, in the early days, he used to just roam free. Uh, but sometimes would dig up the neighbour's lawn, which wasn't ideal.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine just as he's growing, just thinking, oh my God, this is not a miniature. I've heard that actually that story before not about you guys but about other people but I mean I think maybe people don't want to know but pigs have really incredible little characters my first job um, like yours was uh, doing uh, work experience mine was at a zoo and I had to clean a lot of the pens and I used to love the pig pen because they were such funny characters they all had distinct personalities and they all did the funniest little things and I loved being in there with them
1: (laughs) Yeah, they are very funny I Even yesterday I was just We have uh, an overload of zucchinis So we was throwing them zucchinis But Mayonnaise always like Runs and grabs his food And then takes it somewhere else Because otherwise Pinot might steal it from him So yeah, they definitely do have their own personalities And they're quite intelligent We did um, teach Pinot um, to sit He's a bit old now to sit But um, yeah, with, with our using our chocolate lab She would sit And then Pinot would sit as well for food
0: Oh my gosh It sounds like Very busy household, but it also sounds like a lot of fun. Beck, what do you love most about your job? What keeps you doing it day in, day out?
1: I think it's um, just seeing people enjoy our wines, like you said, about um, me doing the the sensory um, garden tastings, with the with the customers and I think you know getting that feedback and seeing the enjoyment that people get from the wine is is really important to me because at the end of the day you know people get quite deep and philosophical about wine but really I'm just making wines for for people to enjoy so uh that um that keeps me going I just I mean and I just really love winemaking it it's lots of fun there's um so many different things you can do it's it's something different every day so I really uh, enjoy that and I I actually like the challenge of of running a business as well Uh, So and coming up with new ideas and being able to have our own business and make wine and and sort of be, I guess, entrepreneurial in a way as well, thinking about new things that we might be able to do is lots of fun. So there's never never a dull moment, that's for sure.
0: Hmm. It sounds like it. I mean, you're very humble but you're a highly awarded winemaker and your wines win gold medals and, you know, skyrocket, you know, um, scores year in and year out. So, whatever you're doing is certainly doing it right.
1: Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: Beth, I wanted to know if you could only drink three drinks for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? Uh,
1: well, I was thinking, depending on how specific I need to be, I was red wine, white wine and sparkling wine.
0: <laughs> you know what? I'll let you get away with that because... <laughs>
1: And if I needed to be more specific, I'd probably go pinot noir and chardonnay are definitely my favourite. My favourite varieties both to drink and make they're very versatile There's lots of different styles you know we make um, six different wines from Pinot so definitely uh, one of my favourites but I could potentially drop the sparkling wine for gin and tonic um, just because it's always nice to have a gin and tonic uh, on a nice hot day after a a big day at work
0: yes definitely That, that, that kind of sense of refreshing excellent choices I love it well thank you so much for your time I really want to get down there and if it's possible I'd love to have a glass of Pinot with you and Pinot the Pig, if that's possible. Um, And really, I'd love to have that experience of a sensory garden, maybe, you know, with um, even my husband or or family or something, because I just think that that sounds like so much fun to do together. And uh, I'm really glad that uh, you had some time for me today. I appreciate it. And I I love what you do down there. And, um, yeah, I look forward to seeing your wine soon. Awesome. Thanks, Shantae. I really enjoyed this chat. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shantae Whale.